0: This is gonna be like kind of goofy because you're in an office, but if you have a coat or a jacket, you can actually like hood it over the microphone and, and yourself and it just kind of builds a bubble that'll keep that echo down. F- dangerous green room in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan And welcome to episode 59 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about world
1: building with one of the most legendary and prolific world builders in the RPG industry, Monty Cook, creator of Planescape, Tolis, Numenera and the Cypher System, and now Invisible
0: Sun. So Invisible Sun is this new standalone RPG. It's developed by Monty and the team at Monty Cook Games. It features an entirely new world and cosmology that contrasts the gray reality of our own world with the bright magical realities of other dimensions. It's sort of a surreal fantasy world, if you will. Players control PCs that can travel between the dimensions and discover truths about their own existence. So tomorrow
1: is the last day of the Invisible Sun Kickstarter. It's already fully funded, but this is your last chance to get in as one of the initial backers who get some access to some great extras. You can check out the game and see the Kickstarter at pathofsuns.com. We'll also have the link in the show notes.
0: You've probably already listened to a bunch of podcasts where Monty discusses Invisible Sun, which is why we waited until the Kickstarter funded so we could talk about <laughs> other things as well. Yeah, things like his inspirations, his
1: creative process, uh, how he crafts his immersive and detailed game world. We started off with the development of Invisible Sun, but, you know, we're D&D fanboys, so we really couldn't miss the
0: chance to talk a bit about Tolis and a
1: lot about Planescape and Sigil.
0: Speaking of Planescape, Monty told us what it would take to get him to work on Planescape for 5e, but you'll have to listen to learn for yourself. And just a note, as with all interviews, the audio isn't quite up to our usual standard.
1: But the content is way better than what we usually offer.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, without further delay... The Total Party Thrill Interview with Monty Cook. So why don't you just start off by giving us the elevator pitch for Invisible Sun.
2: So Invisible Sun is a surrealistic fantasy. It is a world of magic, uh, but it is not go by the normal sword and sorcery tropes. That was the elevator pitch, by the way. Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> the longer version of that is that Invisible Sun is a world where we discover, we learn that we are actually beings of a much larger reality called the actuality. And that we have been sort of admired and trapped here in shadow for a long time. Uh, and But we are going to move on and expand into what we call the actuality which is the quote unquote real world and this is a world of just wild imaginative craziness basically that's where the, the surreal part comes in and player characters go out and and basically are trying to uncover the secrets of the universe right you know once they've learned that there's so much more to the to reality than they thought they want to just keep going
1: can you talk a bit about the mechanics and the logistics of it? Uh, how can players uh, get involved? How can they get involved in the Kickstarter?
2: Sure. So we've got a Kickstarter going on. It ends on September 16th. If anyone is interested, they can they can go there. They can also go to montecutegames.com and find a link there. The mechanics of the game are a little bit different, maybe even a lot different than those you'll find in other games because Invisible Sun incorporates what we call a third mode of play. If the first two are just sort of action and the second one is just kind of straightforward narrative, the third mode of play is what we call character development or development mode. And development mode is played away from the table. So it is the kind of thing that you can do just one player in the GM, two players in the GM, and you create what amount to side scenes that go along with the regular narrative, but might focus in on something that only one or two characters wants to do, basically to elaborate on their own character development. And this can even include things that have already happened. These can be flashback scenes to further sort of flesh out some a character's background. But all of these things, because you're, you're actually playing through them, then turn around and feed back into and inform the group narrative as well.
0: So what's the mechanic for feeding back into it? Like if I'm participating in sort of development mode, right, maybe with one other player, how do the other two or three players at the table then learn about what happened in maybe a flashback or something, a side scene?
2: A lot of it, actually, is going to happen narratively, right? So we have, for example, uh, tied to the Kickstarter, we have a gameplay video. And in that gameplay video, you can see where the group of characters runs into an obstacle that they don't know how to get past. And the session ends, one of the characters thinks to herself, you know, in my past, I may have come here before... And so she talks to the GM, the GM and she play out the side scene where in fact she had come there before. She, in the side scene, learns how to overcome the obstacle so that when the next regular session starts up next time, she shows up and says, okay, I know how to get past this and just does so, right? And so it it all happens narratively. Uh, Game mechanics wise, what happens is the advancement is measured in story arcs, and uh story arcs have these story points along the scope of the arc so in using a side scene from development mode, you might reach one of your story points, but you also might actually uncover a whole new story arc, for example, or start a whole new story arc that your character goes on because characters can have more than one story arc going at a time, just just like a character in any other fiction.
1: So those arcs are in lieu of what in other games might be levels, like character levels?
2: Basically, yeah. So you've got this arc... And there are a great number of different arcs that your character can go on. They're very general. You give them your own specificity based on, you know, who you are and what you are doing. So you might, for example, have... I'll just pick a a silly example, right? You might have a revenge story arc. You know, someone killed your father and now you've got to find them and, you know, they must prepare to die, like Princess Bride. But along that story arc, you know, the first point might be, finding the first clue as to where the person that you need to get revenge on is. And the set, you know, and it just goes and goes and goes until it reaches the climax. You find that person, and then there's a resolution. And all of those points are story points. And each one of those, when you reach them, you would get... Uh, we don't use the term experience points, but essentially what amounts to being some experience points that you can then use to unlock new abilities.
0: So then who decides what these arcs are are those arcs suggested in like towards the players are they something that the gm predetermines is it is it something that the setting material provides what where does that come from
2: you know, in this game, because of this whole story arc mechanic, right, it's in every game, right, the GM sort of encourages, you know, make up an interesting background for your character, right? And maybe someone will make up a few paragraphs or whatever. But in this game, um, it's sort of much more fundamental to the character to think about these things uh, because it is going to determine how your character proceeds further, right? So it's a lot of is up to the player, In character creation, you've got a lot of different choices. You're kind of choosing uh, the order that you belong to. Everyone belongs to one of the orders of magic, for example. And when you make that choice, that choice is going to suggest three or four different story arcs that go nicely along with it. So there might be a general story arc that is, you know, find a mentor, right? Right. And if you choose the order of Vance, it might actually say, well, you want to get this particular guy to be your mentor. And here are the four steps that you will have to undertake to, to get to him. So it's kind of all laid out in front of you. But of course, you could also choose to base your first story arc on some completely different aspect of your character. So there's a lot of choices. How
1: closely tied are those choices to the world that you've created? Uh, Can you tell us a a bit more about the world of Invisible Sun?
2: Absolutely. Um, Everything is really, really tied together. More so than in other games that I have worked on, uh, the setting and the mechanics are really interwoven. So, for example, I mentioned that there are these orders of magic. And then you can also choose to be an apostate, which means that you reject the whole idea of orders. But anyway, so there's these five different orders then, if you count apostates. Um, and so these are character options that you can choose, and they're going to inform like the abilities that your character starts out with. In fact, they're going to inform how you utilize the magic in the world. Um, there's the Order of the Vance, and they... Look at spells as being these living, uh, intelligent things that they sort of cram into their brain and they can only hold so many of them at a time.
1: So, this is a a Jack Vance homage?
2: It is very much so, right? (laughs) But then there are weavers, right? And they look at magic completely differently and they take like different aspects and they weave it together sort of on the fly and create their own spells, you know, moment by moment. So, these are tied to the different orders and so that. That's a that's a mechanical choice, right? You're you're making that choice to determine mm-hmm. how your character does stuff, but at the same time, those are actual organizations that also exist in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So they also determine how you fit into the society in this world. Most of the characters are going to start out uh, in this city of Saturine, which is in a place that uh, we call Indigo. If you imagine that our world, and I mean like Earth, the way we think of mm-hmm. it with podcasts and uh, things like that, <laughs> that's what's called the gray. It's also called shadow because it is metaphorically a shadow of indigo as seen in the light of something called the invisible sun. And the invisible sun is sort of the uh, the source of magic in the world. But there are all these other suns. So each, each one of them are tied to a particular color. There's the indigo sun, there's the gray sun, but there's also the blue sun, the green sun. And each one of them has a different aspect to it, a different uh, connotation. Um, so the green sun is, is sort of the sun that represents life. Uh, the blue sun is the sun that sort of represents uh, relaxation, imagination, dreams, that kind of thing. Red sun is, is about change and destruction. And they all form what's called the Path of Suns. And the Path of Suns, you can see on pathofsuns.com, what it kind of creates is this very occult-looking symbol that indicates sort of a map of the actuality. But the idea is, is that it is also a map of the human soul at the same time, because one of the concepts of this world is that the external reflects the internal and the internal reflects the external. So um, you might as part of your character be tied more or less to one of these suns, one of these aspects of reality, but they are also places that you can literally go to, right? You can go to the red and, you find that it's actually this really dangerous, terrible place filled with demons, but you can, you can go there, but it also is a a metaphor and a a metaphysical place that represents change and destruction. Like
1: why am I not surprised that Monty Cook has created this entire cosmology uh, with, Oh, I don't know, a faction tied to each color.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is very Planescape like in some ways. Um, I think that, Probably the most Planescape-like thing I've done since Planescape, really. Mm.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Well, I mean, we're due for another Planescape. (laughs) (laughs) We are owed another Planescape. (laughs) It has been a while, hasn't it? Yeah.
1: So with Invisible Sun, I'm sort of interested in when you're starting from scratch, I guess, right? And saying, all right, I'm going to develop a new game in a new game world. What does that start? Did you begin with mechanics and go, okay, I need to create these different orders that people work through in order to fit these mechanics? Did it go the other way? And you say, all right, I've got these five ways that people could use magic. What would those mechanics be?
2: In this particular case, it definitely started with the world. And in fact, it started even maybe a step earlier than that, which was really, really diving headfirst into the surreal the thing that thrills me about that is that, you know, there's all this great sort of metaphorical, uh, imaginative art that's out there. And it's not really ever meant to be taken literally, right? You look at some science fiction or fantasy book cover, right? And it's got all this imagery and, and, you know, it only sort of makes sense as a, representation not as a, a, a specific depiction right. and so my inspiration was what if I took all that art and made it literal right that is actually a right. place uh, you know I spent a lot of time looking at that kind of art and what would that world be like and what would that mean and obviously it's a world of, of magic I wanted to create a world obviously that's very magic heavy but was very like like people had sort of figured that out right people understood that the world's filled with magic, magic is the thing, right? And so it led very quickly to this idea that there would be, you know, these different sort of schools of magic, which eventually became the orders. And, you know, you could progress through the orders, but I wanted, I knew in the moment I I had that idea that I wanted you to be able to progress through these orders and that would represent not only your character advancing like, you know, your, your stats and whatnot, but it would represent you moving through the order, you know, as a, as a character, right. That it would be a part of the stuff that your character thinks, not just the, what the player thinks. So when you say that I'm a third degree Vance, you can say that in the world and that means something.
0: So who are the orders then? Are they people who left our world previously and have been in either Saturnine or in the Indigo for a long period?
2: Most of them. So everyone who uses magic in this world, which is sort of like all the movers and shakers, right? Uh, They call themselves Visle, And that's because uh, all of the different suns that I was mentioning each has... A guardian, or actually a, a pair of guardians, and the guardian of the invisible sun. So the sort of the person, not person, being sort of in charge of magic, so to speak, is an entity called Visla, and all Visle sort of at least pay her lip service, at least give her a little bit of rever- reverence. So they call themselves Visle, and there was a terrible war in the in the fairly recent past, and most Visle actually fled into shadow and that's why that's why we assume we are all of Islay that's why we're here and we've been here so long and the the sort of the lie of shadow is so strong that we forgot.
1: Wait so is that an origin story for humanity or is it just why we have like magicians in the world? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the idea the idea is, is that without the Visley, the Grey is just literally a shadow. It has no real truth to it. It has no real meaning to it. But since the Visley all kind of hid out here, they, they exiled themselves um, intentionally uh, to, to avoid the war. It probably gave the Grey, it probably gave Shadow a great deal more power and substance than it once had. And it became a trap. It's it's almost like inadvertently the Visley trapped themselves in the Grey. And so now the Visley that didn't go or the Visley who have escaped sometimes come and try to help people get out of Shadow and back into the r- regular world and indoctrinate them. Which is an interesting thing because... Some of them might be doing that for altruistic motives, but some of them might have completely ulterior motives for why they want to do that. But in any event, the idea is that the player characters, actually when you're sitting down to play the game, you've left Shadow. That's, the, that's sort of the default. And you are, you are back, you, you know the basics, and, and you're sort of ready to go back and start, start delving into the actuality. You could play a game that actually starts in shadow, but that's not sort of the default assumption with the game.
1: So w- where did the rainbow sort of structure come in? Was it, was that early on or were you sort of looking at it and going, Oh, I think I have like seven or eight things.
2: <laughs> you know, I'll be honest. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of self-aware enough to know that I, I seem to kind of always be falling back into using color as a, as an important aspect of reality. It just it must just be something about the way my brain works because I, I keep kind of pulling back to that. It's something that's really easy for people to kind of hang on to, right? I mean, I think it's, I think we all sort of associate colors with ideas and concepts and, you know, I can play off of that. Plus I can play off of phrases and sayings like out of the blue, I can actually playoff of that with, with the blue sun.
0: Yeah. I I like that idea too. Just (laughs) like when you take things literally, you know, like you said, surrealist paintings become literal, uh, turns of phrase become literal. Yeah. Um, it, it, It has like that bleed over effect, right? Where maybe that's something that's leaking out of Indigo.
2: That's, that's kind of my thinking too, right? That it is, maybe it's a half remembered idea that now we think of as a metaphor, but it's actually something that we're remembering from our from our true life that is right. actually real,
0: like like green with envy, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, how solved is the invisible sun setting? I guess what I mean by that is, like, we talked to Keith Baker about Eberron, and there are these unsolved mysteries that are sort of there for the GM to you know, figure out on their own. Or like Planescape. There's not really a backstory for the Lady of Pain. It's sort of up to you, you know? But look at something like Forgotten Realms and there are really no unanswered questions anymore.
2: <laughs> you know, on that spectrum, Invisible Sun is more like Planescape. That's the way my designs lean. I mean that's true of Numenera as well. I'm I'm sort of more interested in questions than I am in answers. Uh, to put it that way, but I think that's a particularly interesting for, for a, a role-playing game setting because it means that any game master can come up with the answers that he or she wants as opposed to just reading about it in a book and and then sort of regurgitating it to players. Now, there'll be some ideas that will be... Secrets to the player characters to start out with that they will discover as things go on. Of course, that is that are revealed within the game, but there'll be plenty of things for the game master to kind of start to explore themselves.
0: Yeah. So speaking of secrets, I know one of the pledge levels involves Monty Cook Games actually sending secrets, unique secrets to GMs and to players. Right. Right. So, so how, as a GM, how do I integrate that? You know, what what kinds of secrets are these that I I'm then? <laughs> what are they? Just tell us the secrets. <laughs> well, no, no no no. But but you know what I mean, right? Like like I have an idea for my campaign and and where things are going, and then uh, and then you guys come in and send a secret to my players, and all of a sudden my campaign is like, well, that's a different direction now. All of a sudden.
2: Oh, I see. Okay, there are secrets tied to all the backer levels, in fact, and they are all setting based secrets. And so, for example, um, everyone is going to get a a secret because based on when you back, we're moving through the path of suns, right, as the Kickstarter goes on. And it's a different sun is is active about every two days. And so depending on under, under which sun you back the Kickstarter, you get a different secret. Uh, which means right there, there's nine different secrets. And those are all setting-based, right? And so everyone who backs under the red sun is going to get a specific secret. And and that secret will be something along the lines of, you know, a cool place that, that maybe exists within the red sun that someone can go investigate. And it's not like if I don't have the red sun secret, I just I can't use... Right. I can't use the red, right? Because it's just one little thing, right? If, if this was the Forgotten Realms, right, it might be some cool little village in Cormier that we're kind of giving you a few details about, but you can certainly play Forgotten Realms without that. But your Forgotten Realms campaign in Cormier might be a little bit cooler because you have that. But I think what you're referring to is actually the directed campaign, which right. is yeah. um, a whole different thing. And uh, it involves a lot of stuff, basically. It's a a month-by-month, we're kind of feeding you enough story material and, and information and stuff for you to run a whole campaign. But one of the things that we will do as a part of that is send the Game Master like actual physical props in the mail, but we'll also send the players with obviously with your permission, with their permission, we'll send the players stuff too. Right. And so that might be like an invitation to a party or uh, whatever, but because that is a part of the directed campaign, the player will get an invitation to an exclusive party, but then the information that the game master gets that month will be, what's going on at that party so it won't be like a complete surprise to you it won't be like okay. we're not gonna we're not gonna derail your campaign by sending your player some weird thing I mean, it's all integrated
1: so getting back to world building i i always wonder is it uh, ever frustrating as someone who who has built many, right? And you know that that people are playing their games uh, in these worlds and, and making up stories. Uh, is it ever frustrating to you when you hear someone uh, tell a story and, like, inside you're thinking, "No, that wouldn't have happened. That's, that's <laughs> not at all how it goes." You know, the, what are you doing? But outwardly, you need to be like, "Oh, that's really interesting."
2: I totally see why you would ask that, but actually, the it's the exact opposite is true. I love hearing about people's stories, you know when they've taken something that i've done or they've they've set an adventure in a world I've created or whatever and you know my feeling is like as soon as it leaves my hands as soon as that book leaves the printer and goes off into the world and it lands on someone else's game table, then it's then that's theirs right and uh and so first of all, they have the right, and maybe even the duty to just, you know, completely change it if they want to, or do whatever they want to with it. Well, it's, it's flattering, first of all, right, that they would even do that, right? I have, you know, oh, I, you know, made this adventure for Numenera or whatever. Cool, right? That's awesome. But it's also really, I don't know, it's invigorating, right? It, it's, it's a feedback loop, right? I, I create a world I send it out. Someone else does something, has a character or whatever that lives in that world. They tell me about it. It's like I've inspired them and now they're inspiring me back. You know what I mean? So it's right. like we're, we're both getting something new out of the deal.
1: I find that so interesting. It's almost sort of the opposite of uh, the stories you sometimes hear about people who write literature because it's sort of like this, this word of God, like I control the entire lore and like you absolutely can't change a thing. Right. And I feel like players sometimes get in that same mindset. Like, you know, obviously Planescape was second edition, but everybody was always trying to like come up with a, a third edition, fourth, fifth edition versions of it. Right. And the arguments between people are, are always, well, that's not Planescape. that that wouldn't happen like there's there are no warforged in tolus like come on
2: right for me that's what separates role-playing games from you know just writing movie scripts or writing a, a novel right is is that there is an interactive element to it there is an expectation on the part of the end user that they will create new stuff that they will change and shape and and whatever if there wasn't you would just be reading a novel in the same way that a, ga- a good game master is going to expect that his players or her players are going to do something unexpected and crazy and creative you know with the, the narrative that, that is set forth i think that a good game designer expects the same thing
0: it's, it's almost like you're writing the story with the expectation there's going to be fan fiction yeah yeah well
2: you know i I actually think that the best way to look at it is that game designers aren't storytellers they're story enablers right Mm -hmm. we're kind of providing the tools for other people to be storytellers
0: well so in that vein then um you should ask you if it was frustrating but what's what's something that you've heard from a player playing in one of your settings when when you heard it you just thought man i should have done that 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 should be canon that's better than what we had
2: I remember that actually happening a lot with Planescape. Actually, you know, that was back in the 90s. Planescape was still extremely edgy. I know that it probably doesn't seem that way today, but at the time, you know, we had just moved out of the whole era where, you know, we were still calling them Tanari and Beata Zoo, not demons mm-hmm. and devils. And And, you know, TSR was an extremely conservative company. And so, as as sort of as much as we pushed the boundaries as as much as we you know did things that were kind of weird and cool i would hear back from players uh way back then it would have been on the uh the TSR AOL uh message board were they even called message boards i don't know the AOL TSR site and uh you know i'd hear back in the and I wish I could remember some of the particulars because they were particularly the things that people were doing with uh, with uh, sigil, where it was just like, "Wow, that's that's really imaginative and cool." And you know, we I, I always realized, "Wow, we're we're still a little gun shy, right? We're still keeping things a little conservative. It's still you know, sword and sorcery, straightforward kind of stuff." And They're doing all kinds of crazy, surreal, imaginative things.
1: So then you were like, well, forget it. We're just going to kill all the gods.
2: (laughs) 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 Well, yeah. I mean, I guess we got a little crazier as time went on, right?
1: (laughs) <laughs> they were good times. I had a character who eventually ended up marrying the Lady of Pain. Which is in context, like that seems weird, but you know, it made sense at the time.
2: <laughs> that is weird, but I'm I want to hear that story because that doesn't God. right. I oh mean in context that doesn't make a bit of sense, which makes sense. No, me really I mean it was after they killed Vecna, but... so you know. <laughs> uh,
1: so With Planescape, you know, this was, like you said, it was the 90s, and that was a while ago at this point. Is there anything that you learned from making that, I won't go so far as to say a mistake, but like, if you want to volunteer a mistake, that sounds good, that you kept in mind when you're creating Invisible Sun? You're like, I don't want to do that, or that was a little too difficult.
2: I don't know if it's right to call it a mistake, because it was was sort of a decision that was, I don't think there was another way to go, but... Planescape relied very, very heavily on real-world mythologies and whatnot. And, you know, some cool things came out of that, right? That we kind of took every real-world mythology that there was and then also took the mythologies of of Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms and everything and we just mashed them all together and threw a bunch of other stuff in there too, right? And And I think there was an interesting synthesis from that. But I certainly from that experience learned that with creating invisible sun, I wasn't going to tie any of it to actually real world myth or a cult or anything. That's a, that's a topic that I am, I'm fairly well versed in. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm fairly well read in, in the occult and things like that. So it's very much informed by that and inspired by that, but it's, there is no, you know, there aren't any Hindu gods or, or you know, things, things like that in this game. You know, the Path of Suns itself is certainly uh, reminiscent of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, but it's not the Tree of Life, right? We have a deck of, of surreal divinatory cards called the Sooth Deck, which is a lot like the Tarot Deck, but it's not the Tarot Deck, that kind of thing.
0: So we won't see any expo- explanations for the role of real-world religion in the Grey,
2: Not really. The only way that I'm going to play around with that is, is narratively uh, uh, from within the story, right? So you might have an NPC who, you know, maybe they were a devout Catholic and then suddenly found themselves, you know, in the much larger world of the actuality, and they still try to impose their, their Catholic beliefs on things. But for me, that's, that's a, that's a completely different direction. That's that's um, kind of going from the inside out rather than the other way. Right.
1: I think most people who you know, create or write, you know, RPG world builders, obviously like rely on their own experiences and things that they find interesting to inform the kind of work that they do. Is there any kind of theme that you can see through the worlds that, that you have created? Is there like a, a similar story that you're trying to share?
2: Um. Because
1: I will say you do have a lot of prison planes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that is very funny because certainly one of the themes of invisible sun is one of escape, right? In fact, it's, I have, I'm looking up at a board right now and I have all these words written on it that are kind of inspiring. And one of them in fact is escape. And, you know, from the point of view of RPGs, good RPGs, good entertainment of any kind is an escape, but also from the sort of the in-world way. And that does show up probably a lot in the work that I do, but it's a metaphorical escape. It's a escape through realization, right? It's realizing that, oh, things are bigger, weirder, more wonderful, more horrific, whatever, uh, than I thought they were. And, and so, yeah. you know, whether that be, you know, it's kind of a Lovecraftian theme, really, if you want to look at it from the dark end of things, right? Lovecraftian heroes all discover that the world is bigger and far more terrible than they thought it was, right? Um, so uh, there's a lot of ways to play that idea. But I think that does work into a lot of things I do.
1: A bit like the, the truth will set you free.
2: Or screw you over. (laughs) Exactly.
0: So, so do you do that for all of your settings that you create? Do you have those sort of those lists of thematic words that you, you set out with objectives that you're trying to hit? Or or is that how you start?
2: Very often. Yeah. You know, as a creator, when you are, you know, especially when you're creating a world, right, it's so easy that you kind of get down in the weeds and you get really down in the details and suddenly you're creating stuff and you find that you've gone way off the path because you're doing something and you and you forgot the big picture so i i always want to try to keep the big picture you know because that's that's what keeps that's what keeps the world of invisible sun, the world of invisible sun. And that's what keeps the ninth world of Numenera and, you know, that right. And, and, and keeps all of those things from just sort of bleeding all into, into each other and, you know, or, or into something that I didn't even create. Right. You know, for example, like when I, when I talk about invisible sun, right. People will say, Oh, I see. That's kind of a little bit like the matrix. Oh, I see. That's a little bit like, um, you know, this other thing. And, and and those things are true, but I want to make sure that I don't allow it to bleed into one of those things too much. I imagine most creators are probably thinking along those lines.
1: So actually, can you describe the board that you're looking at for us?
2: Uh, sure. So you guys are uh, familiar with the uh, musician Brian Eno? I'm sure you are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he created this whole list of weird, like creative... I don't know what you'd call inspiration prompts. And so they're really interesting. Like when you're, when you're stuck on something, in fact, it's, it's actually, he made them into a physical set of cards that you can draw. Um, And so I w I don't have the cards, but I was looking at the list and one of them was uh, discover your recipes and abandon them. Right. And so Mm -hmm. the idea there of course is, you know, discover the kinds of things that you always kind of fall back on and try to do something different. And I don't think that, that he means like in big, big ways, but like in the smaller ways, right? So not colors, right? Right, right. But maybe, you know, maybe I should have <laughs> too late now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, you know, and then I've got some um, pieces of art here. I have a big image of David Bowie who's a kind of the, the creative muse of invisible Sun in a lot of ways. The fact that I really started like full-time working on Invisible Sun just as uh, his album Black star came out and and he died um, uh-huh. was 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 kind of weird for me. Uh, so I've got a bunch of, of art, escape, uh, surreal oh I have a I have a little mantra this is one I came up with on my own um, and that is, when faced with a choice, do both, right? Which is another kind of creative prompt, right? Like, again, to use an absurd example, uh, you know, should I make this guy a good guy or a bad guy? Well, what if we did both, right? What if he was somehow both of those things at once? So that always makes things more interesting, I think. So that's kind of what's up there.
1: So what's your process like for creating? Uh, I heard Salman Rushdie he said oh he like gets up he works from nine o'clock to five o'clock he writes the whole time like a job and then he stops but i don't know for a lot of people that doesn't necessarily work no that wouldn't work (laughs) for me at
2: all um i'm i'm very much a night person very much a night Mm -hmm. owl. in fact from a lot of people's point of view i probably live my days backwards right i get up and that's like when I go to Netflix and watch a movie or, or something like that. Uh, and then I go and check email and do those kinds of things, uh, check in with the rest of my team and whatnot. But then my actual workday where I'm writing is all in the evening. I probably get in maybe five to six good creative hours a day, but I probably don't start until eight or nine in the evening.
1: Well, so speaking of which, you, you mentioned Netflix, but who... Are there people and what are what are the media that are really inspiring you lately?
2: Um, well, I sort of only half jokingly uh, refer to Invisible Sun as being Harry Potter if it was written by Philip K. Dick. <laughs> uh, so uh, I would say I would say Dick. You know, I have I've long been a big fan of Grant Morrison, um, the comic book writer. Everything that he does is just trippy and weird, and and just sort of so filled with ideas, um, and then uh, right alongside him, Alan Moore, who's written a ton of interesting stuff about magic and the occult and and things oh. like that, um, is very uh, inspirational for me on top of that you know i have I have this whole table over here that is filled with books on the occult. I get a lot of inspiration from that, like I said, none of it is sort of Directly lifting that stuff, but just inspiring stuff, and that's kind of straightforward stuff like Crowley and Spare and people like that. But also kind of mm-hmm. more weird out there people like Kenneth Grant. I don't know if those names mean anything to you, but well, Crowley does. Yeah, Crowley's <laughs> like the one name in the cult, right? <laughs> right. right, right. You got to You got to know your Crowley before you can even start on anything like this.
1: So, with all of these things inspiring you. I think a a thing that something that's very hard for a lot of creators is then taking all of that and figuring out what is good, what is not so good, or at least not useful in this particular moment. Like how do you prune and refine? How do you pull it all back?
2: So just to talk specifically about Invisible Sun, I've been working Mm -hmm. on Invisible Sun for a long time in the sort of concept stage. I've only really started working on it you know, full time, uh, for the last four or five, maybe six months. So what I do is as I'm going through, I've got all these notebooks and I just, every time I read something, come upon something that's just like, wow. Right. I, I, I make a note in one of these many notebooks that I've scattered all over the house. And so when it comes time to actually work on it, that's almost like the crazy first draft, right, is just all these scattered ideas and notes and whatever. And then the next step uh, is going through all that, and that's where pruning things out, right? Because sometimes, you know, you get weird. You know, I, I have these two cool ideas, but I can't use them both, right? So you got to kind of make and pick and choose, or, or you know, you think, well, I don't, I don't have room for all of these things, right? But so I, I've just got to pick. And, you know, when in doubt, right, I try to go with something that's the most original or sort of has the most wow factor. For me, that's why I read. That's why I play RPGs. And so that's kind of what I try to get out there is just kind of those ideas that just make people go, oh, right. That's my drug, right? That's, that's what I do. That's, you know, why I'm consuming this media. And so that's why I'm creating
0: yeah, I, I think that's definitely one of the things that resonates about the worlds that you create with players, right, is, is that wow factor element. So, you yeah, I, there's no doubt Numenera and, and Planescape, right, just evoke so much of that for, for people who get involved in it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope so, right? I mean, even sort of the more kind of straightforward D&D work that I did, you know, something like, you know, Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil... Still had some, hopefully, some moments where people were like, "Wow, that! Wow, that's crazy!" You know. (laughs) Wow,
0: they they let this module go to print
2: first time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who came up with these
1: DCs? (laughs) Well, yeah, no, I think I think that that speaks to the success of that, right? There's still wow moments, but it's a recognizable, you know, quote unquote, normal module.
2: Right, right. I mean. That's always the trick, right? Is you've got to give people kind of a, a, a really strong, mind-blowing sense of wonder, but at the same time, you know, they've got to have something that they can relate to or else it's just dream sequence after dream sequence, right? That, that doesn't really have any substance to it.
1: So how do you know when you're done with all the tweaking and they're finding like, how is a world-
2: Done. Um so I think the first thing you have to do is you have to abandon that idea, right? That Mm -hmm. it's not gonna be done. Um and so what I try to do, and this is this is probably a lesson that I learned mostly when I was working on um the the big setting that I did TOLUS. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is approach everything from the point of view of the end user, right? And so most of the time that's gonna be the game master and do they have enough to run a cool game and when you can say yes then i think you're not done but you're you're done for now
0: right because right. there's right. always
2: going to be more there's always and 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 in fact i think it's important that there's always going to be more because again we're going back to that idea that you know the game masters and the players are—they're going to be creating stuff too. If you, you—if you're done, I mean, you know, if you have every single, you know, building in the Forgotten Realms that is completely mapped out, and you know, you know the stat of every villager and right, and you're done, done. Well, then there's no room left to really do anything. Yeah, that's
0: that's like a life's work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not a recommendation for any world builders out there. <laughs>
1: Wait, so TOLUS isn't done? Does that mean I'll get answers about the Metal Storm at some point, <laughs>
2: someday? Maybe. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, what's What's the status of TOLUS? Could that come back now that there's the 5e OGL?
2: Uh, I guess the answer is yes, it could, but it's not. it's not on my radar. I do what I do because I love doing it and what I love doing is creating, and so the idea of going back to something, you know, like doing a new version of Tolis doesn't have a lot of appeal to me because that's not creating, it's just updating. I don't know the context in which I could do this, but, like, if it was a brand-new adventure set in Tolis or something like that, that would have more interest for me, But, but in order to pull that off for 5e, you'd have to update us to 5e, and, you know, <laughs> it's a okay. catch-22. Like
1: if, for example, the DMs Guild got opened up, you know, outside just the Forgotten Realms, is that anything that you think you might be interested in, releasing anything there? Or is that a marketplace that you are looking at at all?
2: I don't think so. I'm not an expert on that, but um, I don't think that that's okay. a marketplace. I think that that's a fantastic marketplace for people who aren't already game publishers. That would be a difficult marketplace to have some success in if you have the expectations already of, of having been a publisher, I think. I don't know. Is anybody doing that? Like, I, not, I don't know of any publishers that are using the DMs Guild, but I could be wrong.
0: No, I don't think publishers. I think um, Keith Baker had talked about being open to going back to Eberron a little bit. Uh. but.
2: That's cool. I mean, you know, like, you know, if somebody said something, if like, if like Colin McComb and Ray Valise, Michelle Carter all got together and said, hey, we're going to use the the DMs Guild to put together a Planescape product, you want to write part of it. It'd be hard to say no to that just because it would be fun and nostalgic. Um, all, right,
0: all right. So Planescape fans, you've heard what we have to do. <laughs> so get on this. <laughs> you've got, you've got your, your four story points that we need to hit on this character arc.
2: <laughs> that is exactly the way to look at it. Yes. <laughs>
0: so I have, I have one more Invisible Sun question for you. I know the numerology of the Kickstarter has been a big mystery, a all the numbers in there are odd numbers. They're not rounded off or even. Right. So I I know we haven't solved the numerology yet, but where did the inspiration to introduce numerology as a mystery, as a mechanic of the, of the setting come from,
2: Um, you know, all of it just comes right out of real world occult stuff, not, the connotations that numbers have in invisible sun because everything in invisible sun is new, but it was inspired by that idea that, you know, you open up pretty much any book on the occult and they're going to start talking about, well, this has this significance and its number is five and, you know, and that kind of thing. And so kind of trying to portray that. And it, uh, and here's what I love about that is, is that it, it becomes the thing that you can use as a metaphor, but also in a literal sort of ways, right? So I can I can start to if I say, for example, that you know indigo um, represents truth and its number is four, then I can start to use the number four to have a significance as it relates to the idea of truth, completely bypassing the middle ground of indigo, right? And so now just four represents truth, and that's a thing that I can use. Um, you know, in world building, right, I can have, you know, four people get together and, and call themselves the, you know, the council of the one true way and, and, and there's a reason. I mean, I didn't just pick four all of a sudden, right? There's actually a reason, a, an in-world reason why there's four of them and that, that kind of thing. It's just – it's it's fodder right it's 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 more and more tools in the toolbox when you're world building to have that kind of stuff and so i mean no no amount of world building is ever going to be as rich and deep and cool as the real world right but um the more you can sort of copy that right and and that's and that's the way the real world works right we have all these kind of references and ideas and connotations and correlations and so if you can throw some of that into your world building, I think everything just feels really rich and cool that way.
1: It also seems like a sort of an advanced creative technique. Like I, I will make some tools for myself and just sort of lay them to the side here. Perhaps I will use them later.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot like that in there, right? There's uh, you know, I mentioned the sooth deck, right? And the, the sooth deck is like a tarot deck sort of, but like a deck of cards, it has, Four families, like kind of like having four suits, and each one of those has a number of of correlations. And, you know, so the the suit of secrets might be tied to I don't actually remember off the top of my head, it might be tied to like ravens and fire and you know swords right it might be and so you've got all these different kind of like you know pieces that you can play with and make these connections to right it's the kind of thing where like if there is a connection between ravens and swords then you know maybe the coolest sword in the world has ravens etched along the blade and the and players pick up on that stuff right they're like oh i i know why it's like that that's cool
1: so that actually sort of reminds me of like one thing I did want to get into, which is I think one thing that players really love about the settings that you put together is the slang uh, or, or like new words and, and languages. And, you know, you're just talking about like ravens or, you know, the number four in truth. And that seems like they're useful building blocks to create new kinds of slang and new kinds of words. But can you just talk a little bit about like how you come up with new words or, or new meanings for old words, right? Because like Planescape sort of uses an old cant.
2: Right. So I wanted to create something like that for Invisible Sun and and specifically thought about the Planescape cant, for example. And the Planescape cant, you know, it's based off of Victorian cant and it it has kind of this sort of rough back alley kind of, mm-hmm. you know, these are a bunch of, of con men and thieves, you know, in the way they talk. And so I knew I didn't want that. Um, I wanted, for, for Invisible Sun, I wanted things to be a little more sophisticated, right? Because speaking in just the broadest of generalities, right, if, if that means that sort of the core Planescape character is like a roguish thief, you know, a con artist, the sort of broad strokes core character in Invisible Sun is going to be sort of the sophisticated wizardly type guy, right? and again just just super broad strokes here so i knew that i wanted to create something that was much more sort of sophisticated in the way it sounded, in the way that it looked on the page. And so, for example, everyone calls themselves Visley. It's a made-up word, obviously, but it sort of looks like a classical word. When you see it on the page, it looks like something taken out of, you know, uh, some classic textbook or something like that. And and so that's kind of what I was going for with that sort of thing. And there are lots of other... Words like that, I'm also just a big fan of words, and so I have this whole shelf of just collections of weird, old words, and so there's a lot of words that I throw out in Invisible Sun that sound like I made them up, but actually they're just kind of archaic and weird and um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's fun to to pull stuff like that out because it sounds right, you know, when I call a spell of an essence, right. Well you might think of the nineties band, but um you know uh you know it is you know it's a real word and it has a meaning and it's cool and that and it describes the spell, but it also just sounds you know better than you know calling something like vanish if or or invisibility if you call it evanescence right it, it has a it, it, there's a different connotation there's a different flavor there
0: yeah, I think evanescence should bring you to life right. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm done.
1: It's <laughs> quality. So, Monty, yeah, that's that's all the questions that we've got. We won't keep you forever, even though we easily could. But, yeah, this has been awesome.
2: Cool, cool. Yeah, you guys have great questions. This is a really fascinating discussion.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for your time. And, I mean, not that you need any luck because you're way past goal, but congratulations <laughs> on the Kickstarter. Oh, thanks.
2: Thanks. Yeah, we're, we're really happy. All right. Thanks, guys. All right.
0: All
1: right. Thanks. thanks, Monty. So Shane, obviously there was a ton of great info in there, but I've got to say I'm actually most excited that Monty clearly said sigil and not sigil, like some people like to insist you pronounce the City of Doors.
0: Yeah, those people pronounce Jif with a hard G, so you can't trust them. Moving on, we're actually skipping the Character Creation Forge this week because we're running way long, but let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous.
1: And you can tweet at Eshan at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com.
0: And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill.
0: Another great way to support the show is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air.
1: You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us.
0: All right, so what do we have planned for next week's episode?
1: We're continuing our series on player profiles, and we're talking about casual gamers.
0: And in the character creation forge?
1: We're actually building the old man of the mountain.
0: Well, that's it for episode 59 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name. But either way. I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.